Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. I am back from Orlando, Florida, where we did our first ever Mockingbird event down there. And let me just say a big shout out to everyone who came, especially the folks at All Saints in Winter Park. And I, um, once again, I was just um, I met lots of people who wanted to tell me about uh, the Mockingcast. And they wanted to say that RJ seems like such a nice guy. And then they also wanted Wrong. to tell me that... They've started uh, shopping at Madewell. The Lord's work. <laughs> because of, Doing the Lord's work. Because of Reverend yeah. Condon over here. It was, uh, it was a really fun time. I missed you guys, but it was, um, it was also a, yet another example of just how far flung this has become. And the urgency of grace was our theme. And it is uh, no less urgent this week than it always has been. But before we talk about that, um, what's new? Still haven't bought any clothes. I'll just do an update all year. Still <laughs> yep, haven't bought any year. clothes. Um, have noticed the urge to buy clothes for members of my family. Um, I think is a way to not buy clothes for myself. <laughs> so it's going great. Uh, yeah, we're really good. Yeah. Yeah. What about what about? I mean, Annie's going to be like, "This was the best year ever." I know, right? Like, no, <laughs> she really is. Like this week, she needed an outfit, so I fully took her to Athleta. Like we could have gone to Walmart, but I took her to Athleta and was like, what do you want? A cute tennis skirt that I can't buy. Let's get it for you. You know? So is she in the phase where she like just outgrows everything you buy her within like a few months? I mean, that's been Annie's state of life for a long time, but yes, she's like, she's so tall and she's always, it's like every time I turn around, she's taller. So yeah, Yeah. that's it. Oh my gosh. Sarah, I thought of you because Harrison Scott Key, who you know not only talked in in, in Orlando about having taught you drama, yeah. he's like, and I, she looks exactly the same. Oh my god, um, that's so generous. It was so so funny. But he was talking about his new book, which is coming out in Jan- June, "How to Stay Married," and it sounds unbelievable. Uh-huh. But one of the steps to how to stay married is he says, look in in a mirror, but not in a sort of a regular athleta mirror. Look in a Walmart mirror. Because that will tell you the truth about yourself before you sort of start blaming your uh, your spouse for everything. But look in a Walmart mirror is like one of his That's steps so towards good. sort of marital survival. I thought that was really funny. That's so good. You know, I uh, I guess we posted something of his, and I thought to mm-hmm. myself, I know that guy. And then I reached out to him, and I and I apologized to him in an email. Because when I was in eighth grade and he was the director and he was like probably 22, he had these records and one of them was the Andrews sisters. And I was a goofy eighth grader and I didn't know who the Andrews sisters were. And he was like, be careful with those. And I go, it's not like they're going to break. And I dropped it and it shattered. <laughs> so when I reconnected with him as a word of grace, all these years later, I was like, really sorry about that record, man. He's like, I don't remember what you're talking about. So... 
That's amazing. Anyway, that's like the scene is, in Uncle Buck. You know, when he's, yeah. he's like, he drops the plate. It's like, oh, it's unbreakable, yeah. and then he bangs it against the piano. It just shatters everywhere. It's awesome. Yeah. So it's really yeah. sweet that he's connected. That's awesome. He was world class. Yeah. And evis- eviscerating. But um, a I cannot wait for we we can't post that talk until his book comes out. Sure. But we will. And um. Everything else will be posted probably by the time this episode uh, goes up. So people should go out and listen. But Harrison Scott Key, my word, he's he's not only won a Thurber Prize for humor writing, he uh, he deserves a Thurber Amazing. Prize for humor humor speaking as well. Uh, Sarah, I'm gonna I can't wait for you to hear. Um, Rutger, how's it going? Things are good. Things are. Blowing and going. I, I uh, preached um, this past Sunday on that amazing article from the New York Times on Christmas Eve about miracles and mm. then kind of spontaneously invited people to come, you know, forward after the service for prayer. And like 30 people came up and really shared deep things about their lives that I didn't know about. And it was a pretty amazing um, Sunday. Um, yeah, things are things are good. I will say one of the highlights of probably the last year for me, this funny thing happened. On Sunday night, I was at a dinner. We had this guest speaker in on Monday morning um, named Susie Pitts, who works for this big Methodist church in Houston. Um, I was having dinner with her and a few people, and I don't know, probably a little punchy because it was Sunday evening and I was tired and whatever. So I was just kind of, you know, being myself. Also, my wife was sitting at another table, which means she wasn't kicking me under the table, telling me to keep my mouth shut. Uh, And Susie looks at me with a smile on her face, goes, RJ, you're kind of a smart ass. And and I said, Yes, I am a smart ass. And I felt so seen and like known and loved. And of course, then I'm like, is it too much? Have I gone too far? Am I being really obnoxious? Is this okay? But it just um it reminded me that yes, I am kind of a smart ass and I need more people that I can be my genuine smart ass self around rather than trying to be um a perfect person all the time. And uh, I shared that story with my men's group this morning, and um, that's a group I can do that with, and they laughed. And uh, it's it's nice when, I don't know, when you can find that balance, when you feel like you've been somewhere long enough where you can be a little bit more yourself, you know, mm. and, and maybe you won't make what the one mistake that ruins everything forever. Right. So maybe, but we'll see. I'll let you know, you know, next podcast <laughs> whether my ministry has come to a, come to a, a sudden now crash. We, we know, like, you know, on your, on your tombstone. You know, that's he, right. He, he he was a smartass, but he was our he was God's smartass. Yeah, or he was just a little bit of a smartass, or just like <laughs> yeah. he made it. <laughs> that's right. He, he he trust me. He was crushing it. He's doing well. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's uh, well, it's good. We're gonna kick off by talking about about sleepovers. Sleepovers. Ooh. This is there's a discussion going on in America among parents and among former children and among current children and teenagers and whatnot about sleepovers. I don't think the institution of sleepovers, at least in certain parts of the country, hasn't quite recovered from the pandemic, but there was skepticism about it already. Now, I'm going to write read to you um, just a little bit, and then we're going to I want to hear about your own sleepover history. Um, this is from Erica Christachis in The Atlantic. Uh, it's called This Case for Sleepovers. Uh, she said that my childhood spanned the era of what I'll call unscientifically peak sleepover, a period from roughly the mid-1960s to the early 1980s that's fondly remembered by those of us with poor memories and limited insight for its laissez-faire parenting norms. 
Today's parents appear more skeptical of sleepovers. On TikTok, a father and psychiatrist got millions of views for a pair of videos which he explains why he doesn't let his children attend sleepovers. And just last week, the Washington Post published an article uh, called Sleepovers Are Become Complicated. Uh, and this is from the Washington Post. As parents look to establish common ground with prospective sleepover hosts, the resulting questions... Do you use parental controls for screen time? Do you own a gun? Are you vaccinated and boosted? Feel imbued with something more complex than a purely logistical checklist. They surface the underlying truth that not everyone shares the same priorities and values, and those priorities and values might not feel negotiable. Sleepover invitations are just one more way to reveal the fault lines between us. Now, I want to go into the case for sleepovers and talk about why Erica Christakis seems to think they're a good idea. But before I do, you guys sleepover kids? Did you do a lot of sleepovers? I mean, all all the time. Yeah, that was a huge part <laughs> of childhood. Yeah, I loved a sleepover. That was like the only time, like I have a really clear memory of my friend Monique's, uh, one of her birthday sleepovers. And we watched Freddy Krueger and sang mm. like an entire Amy Grant album at the same sleepover. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, wow. and just wow. like the, just, I love a sleepover. I mean, I like, my kids have sleepovers now. I love like the utter lawlessness of them. It's like really joyful mm-hmm. to me, like yes. junk food, pizza. I should have rules that children have to eat at the table. I don't. So like they're yeah. like and they get real you can always tell the kids they like come with a lot of rules because they're just like, wait, you gonna let us bring pizza upstairs? I'm like, yeah, it, the carpets are already bad. So like live it up with a pineapple Fanta, you know? Um <laughs> so I really love it. I mean, the only rule I have, and it is it is a very firm rule, and I'm, I'm having to institute it more and more now that I have a middle schooler, is like you can't have screens in your room at night. Like you just can't. Yeah. Like that's just like asking for trouble. But I just advise anyone who's in that situation to just turn on a Southern mother, like, Sunday school accent. Men can do this, too. And I just go, oh, we don't have screens in the room at night, so you're going to have to give that to me. Just like that. And they're like, they're always like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, this lady sounds crazy. So <laughs> that's how, I mean, that's the only rule I have. The lawlessness of a sleepover. I think there's I something like, it. there's something free, th- th- f- Sleepover to, to me always brings up memories of freedom and like getting away with stuff that I wasn't allowed to do totally. at our house or getting away with stuff at our house that I wasn't allowed to do at our house. Um, but it was it was such a mainstay of my childhood and at least living where I do. Um, there are some sleepovers, but they're far, far less common than they were when I was a kid. And I, I wonder what that's about. And I think it's there's has been a little bit of like, you know, sickness stuff but um i think there's a loss to it and i remember talking to a coach on the or some parents on the sideline of a basketball game is like have you guys been doing a bunch of sleepovers that we just don't know about you know are we just the, the people not getting invited to the sleepovers and they're like no 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 one's really doing that i don't know what what's happened here that it's become a uh, socially sort of off limits but rj tell me about your sleepover you grew up a, a kid in connecticut there's no way you weren't doing lots of sleepovers oh i loved sleepovers i mean my most embarrassing personal story well actually i'm, I'm my second RJ, most embarrassing I was like, personal I story know, i'm gonna man. go i'm gonna leave the, the first one off i'll let you speculate 
But the second was um, because I was such a good and um, rule-following kid, I was at a sleepover, and all my buddies wanted to rent an R-rated movie, mm. and I wasn't sure that was okay. And so I had to call my mom on the payphone oh and ask her. I was like, "Is it okay if we if I watch The Witches of Eastwick? Is that okay?" <laughs> that <laughs> <No>. was it. <laughs> that was George that Miller. Was, that was the movie. So yeah, I think I was twelve or thirteen. And she's like, "Yes, RJ, you can watch Witches of Eastwick." Um, so that's embarrassing. That's amazing. Thank you. I love I love, that. I love coming up. You know, um, we have a nice sleepover since we moved because of the pandemic, and also now, our our youngest six is dying for a sleepover. And we're like, you can have a sleepover when you can spend the whole night in your own bed. Yeah. You know, because we're trying six to con him into actually spending that. Like, you need to be able to stay in your own room yeah. if you want to have a sleepover. But our previous house, um, yeah, they were all upstairs, and there was nothing funnier than going upstairs in the morning. Because, of course, my wonderful wife, we'd have, you know, eight kids over, uh-huh. and she'd make all the beds and do the air mattresses, put out the camping mattresses, and then you go up there. There's, like, three kids in one bed, yeah. nobody in any other bed, another kid's on the ground with the camping mattress on top of him that he's using as a blanket. Because he just, you like, know, and it just... fell asleep where he was, yes, like, it's yeah. like, And one, kid, one kid's still here? up, like, playing a video game in the corner. Yeah, and then we've definitely yeah. had experiences where, like, our boys invited some kid over who like had never been to a sleepover oh, before yeah. and the mom will call Jamie a few days later and be like that was the greatest night of Michael's life Aww. I want you to understand that was the best thing that has ever happened to him so uh yeah my mom was great about that we always had like a mini fridge that she would stock with like well remember like clearly Canadians yeah my remember kids have started those? drinking those yeah oh, I think they're back. back are those back the blackberry so flavor would, yes yeah. my mom would stock whatever was like the latest hottest drink Aww. right it was Snapple it was like clearly Canadian it was other things and she my mom always wanted our house to be like the hangout mm-hmm. spot and part of that was I can control what happens in sure. my house yeah. probably but that's totally like been our goal for our kids too like we want to have the we want to have the party house we want to be the party house mm-hmm. for our mm-hmm. for our boys and their friends so totally. i love the sleepover i you know. yeah did i um let me let me read you what she says i think it'll it'll sort of bring up more stories uh, that i want to hear especially about watching freddy krueger and singing amy grant <laughs> yes um, cuz that's not that's uh, freddy krueger part was part of boy sleepovers amy grant uh, i don't I, Less so. I remember we were like trying to shock each other with like we memorize get in the ring by guns and roses that would be like the um nice anyway this is what she writes she says basic due diligence is essential for any interaction between kids and other families but after the threshold for safety has been met why does it matter if our kids eat junk food for a night or hear unwelcome political views or sit through the wrong kind of prayers or no prayers at dinner time why would we want to deprive a child of the occasional strange or uncomfortable experience at another family's house, even one that might directly conflict with our values or our preferred practices? Isn't it an understanding of human differences a bulwark against frailty and narcissism? Mm. She goes into the, the benefits of sleepovers, but the big one she says is that children can benefit from them, uh, mainly the chance to learn from other families. I found it incredibly exciting to be a voyeur in another family's home. Some families ran a tight ship. Others had dishes piled high in the sink. Some parents were fun to talk with. Others scared me witless. Some families seemed to be thriving. Others were just hanging on. Seeing these differences helped me reflect on my own place in the world. Sleepovers offered a window into something mysterious and occasionally unsettling. Other families' emotional lives. It's often hard for families to contain arguments, rivalries, and mood swings at nighttime. 
Fathers were usually the wild card, prone to nonsensical outbursts that occasionally scared me, but mothers could be weird too. Cranky, depressed, flighty. Sometimes the weirdness came from how utterly normal other kids' parents seemed, or from the suspicion that other people's families might be just a little better than my own. In our polarized world, where people now view the smallest differences as ground for ostracism, seems to me that there is more need than ever to allow our children to play and eat, and yes, sleep, in another child's home. I had the I write about it in Low Anthropology that there was one kid, uh, a friend of mine named Brian, who I was always angling for sleepovers at his house because um, not only would we be able to watch R-rated movies, but we were allowed to we always order Domino's pizza, and this was like the early days of Domino's yes. pizza. And the reason I wrote about it in the book was the fact that I look back and they had a very modern house and his mother was like an executive at IBM. And I look back and I realize it was a very liberal house that had no rules about you could watch R-rated movies and she would order pizza. Um, health was not in the conversation. It was more like she'd been working so hard. It was like it was her empowerment that said, go in, over there and do your thing and leave me, leave us alone. Get off my back. Yeah. And then Mommy the, needs a drink. The, yeah. And then, and so there was a lack of censoriousness and that was where you went if you wanted to like listen to the you know the rap music too mm. but then as i've gotten older that sort of switched in the sense that there seems to be more like censoriousness around proper stuff to watch and not watch just by the disney you know has now has like these content warnings before you watch things uh, that have like you know warning smoking in, uh, warning smoking or just sort of uh, prejudicial sort of you know portrayals of minorities or something like that and then more than that though like the more kind of leftward the house or birthday party certainly in our context like the more healthy you eat like you certainly do not have just like DiGiorno's it's not like you have organic stuff and you have you know no soda anywhere in sight and and it's completely switched from when i was a child and the tenor of their house was different than ours i think mm-hmm. um uh, you know the awkward thing for me growing up was when people i had a lot of sleepovers at our house too but those kids came to church with us and that was partly it was helpful because my parents were like yeah, that's not non-negotiable they were up front with their parents yeah we're going to church in the morning so unless you want to pick them up early they're coming with us and i don't think it was ever an issue mm-hmm. and in fact i know that for a number of kids that like that was their primary exposure to Christianity, and it was a good one. Jewish friends, stuff like that. Anyway, it's it's. What, what do you guys think about that? Any any? I mean, I just do, both our kids do sleepovers. So Neil's best friend, uh, his dad is white, but his mom is Chinese and Muslim, and more culturally than anything else. So like the first time we learned this about Harry, he came over to our house, and we we're like, we're gonna order Domino's, and he's like, okay, but I only eat chicken and pineapple pizza. And Josh was like, what the hell combination is that? <laughs> and like, it took us forever to be like, oh, it's because he can't eat ham, you know, like, because that's a rule, like, from his house. So, like, when we have Harry over, which is a lot, we know, you know, that these are the rules. And that's been such a beautiful thing for Neil because his, his, um, Harry's mom is a wonderful, she's like one of those women that works really, really hard and also manages home really, really well in a way I deeply admire, but she makes, dumplings like Chinese dumplings like all the time like casually like it's not a deal it's like the way that I'm like who wants a grilled cheese you know and so she's like taught Neil how to make them and Neil like loves it and it's just like so beautiful to see that exchange um but the other thing I'm thinking of is uh we had 
uh, friend's daughter stay with, they've stayed with us a couple of times. It's Annie's best friends. And, um, their moms had cancer a couple of times. They've got a lot going on and we kept them one night and they were all in the guest room, which has a piano in it that no one ever plays. And I could hear the piano going <laughs> and I opened up the door of the room and all three girls were stark naked, banging on the piano, dancing. And I was like, this is the the best vision of like heavenly joy I've ever seen. Like they'd all taken a shower and instead of like using a towel or getting dressed, they're sopping wet, banging on the piano, dancing. And I was like, I never want to forget this, you know, like just like it's. It, I think that's some sleepover shenanigans, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and now no one will ever come to Sarah's for a sleepover right? ever again. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> we have so much paranoia about what kids will do when they're together without us, and mm. I get it. You know, that's why we don't do screens, right? Why I just like yeah. confiscate all that at night. I get it, but also. There's like a lot of fun that they get to have. And yes. and I just I don't and, and it's like such a beautiful thing to me. Um yeah. so it makes me sad that people are not doing sleepers. Cause Dave, I love everything that 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 you said and that the writer was saying about being exposed to different families, like I mean, my best friend growing up, uh, I remember her mom would come in every morning and like snuggle us to wake her up. Because that was a normal thing she did as a mom. And my parents were more of like, throw open the door. My dad would usually sing, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow from Oklahoma. And turn on the lights. But there was no physical affection. And Mm. like, I mimic that with my own children now, right? From those sleepovers. Like, I don't think of my parents when I'm doing it. I think of her mom. So anyway, I just think there's so much value. Yeah. I suddenly remembered, I'd totally forgotten about this till now, um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I had this big kind of band and choir trip mm. I went on, and um, the second day we were there, the flutist died of an aneurysm. Oh my God. Like up and died. Like a young person. Re- senior in high school. Oh, she RJ. She was really brilliant. She was headed to Duke. She was much loved, um, and it was really pretty heavy. So when we got back from the trip, um, about a week later, I invited everyone um, to come to our house for a sleepover because we had this gigantic open basement, and pretty much everyone did. And it was really amazing and and healing just Mm. to all be together that way as we were mourning the sudden traumatic death of this person. You it's because sometimes why like that's retreats amazing. can be like overnight retreats can be so wonderful and that's why really? we do them my, my son just went on his first overnight retreat with the youth group because he's in sixth grade and and it was he they had so so much fun and i was just thrilled that he got to do that but then but the the, the thing about sleepovers is though sometimes like you get introduced to yes the quirkiness of another family or like i think it does increase empathy like i remember angling also for sleepover invites to this one kid who was very 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 wealthy and had every single toy. Like I, what I really yeah. wanted to play with was like that transformer that like turned into a planet. You know, it was it was the most amazing transformer, and I knew he had it, and I was trying to get it. But then you got there, and there was this enormous house, and like everyone was 
siloed off and, totally. and there was a real s- sense of sadness. Yeah. And like by the time I got home into our sort of messy, smaller situation, it just felt, oh my gosh, that's nice. Or um, y- you learn a lot in those situations. So anyway, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that uh, there is pushback on the no sleepover thing because it's... Uh, it can be a real Sleepovers. experience of grace. I remember playing Double Dragon on Nintendo the entire night, and we were all trying to stay up as late as That's we possibly amazing. could. And that, for me, as like a as like a sixth grader, was as close to heaven as you could get. Absolutely. You know? Well, we're going to talk about another thing that sort of relates to the sort of, uh, um, I guess, uh, separation that we experience, and we're going to kind of delve back into mental health a little bit. Uh, and this is a Dear Cloud column uh, in Wired magazine of uh, someone writing into... And Megan O'Geeblin is the person, the advice columnist for that magazine. It's the best column out there, as far as I can tell. And this person doesn't have money for therapy and says, a mental health app seems like it could be a decent stepping stone, but are they actually helpful? And this is what Megan writes. She says, I'd argue that such apps are not intended to be alternatives to therapy, but they can represent a digital update to the self-help genre. Like the paperbacks found in the personal growth sections of bookstores, such apps promise that mental health can be improved through self-awareness and self-knowledge, virtues that are foisted on individuals in the twilight of public institutions and social safety nets. Helping oneself is, of course, an awkward idea, philosophically speaking. It's one that involves splitting the self into two entities, the helper and the beneficiary, both the scientist and the subject. It's true that many health apps do recommend activities that are not about oneself, that are about getting off of one's phone, but they tend to be tasks performed in isolations, push-ups, walks, guided meditations. And because they are completed so as to be checked off, tracked, subsumed into one's overall mental health stats, the apps end up ascribing a utility value to activities that should be pleasurable for their own sake. By attempting to instill more self-awareness, these apps end up intensifying the disunity that so many of us already feel on virtual platforms. She goes on to say this. She said, Freud, Sigmund Freud once pointed out that new technologies merely solve problems created by other technologies. To the common refrain that without the telephone, we'd be unable to hear the voices of our adult children who live hundreds of miles away, he replied... If there had been no railway to conquer distances, my child would never have left his native town and I should have no need for a telephone to hear his voice. Psychoanalysis may be a somewhat outmoded therapeutic framework, but it's one that takes human irrationality seriously and perhaps offer insight into the absurd belief that we can use digital tools to solve a health crisis that at least in part is exacerbated by them. The contemporary brand of unhappiness, Megan writes, that stems from excessive self-consciousness can partly be dispelled by immersing oneself in a throng of other people. Go to church or to a 12-step meeting. Join a community sports league or attend a concert. While group activities may not address the underlying cause of your malaise, they will surely offer a reprieve. You'll momentarily forget your heart rate, your REM stats, and your wellness history, and remember the existence of fellow human beings who are suffering, most likely in similar ways. At some point, I suspect, you'll find that your breathing is taking care of itself. Ah, I just love this so much. I just think she's the best writer going right now. It's such an excellent observation. I mean, I I do, I've done some of those, um, well, I've, I've done some of the more Christian ones, but even those I find... You know, I was never one of those, like, desert father types that's like, it's just me and the Lord, you know, out here, like, communing or whatever on a rock or (laughs) whatever they were doing. Um, 
I need people, right, to remind me of the goodness of God's grace and, and how much he loves us. And I have to say, like, my mental health was never better than it was last week because it was homecoming week. And that meant that in addition to my work on campus at Rice, every day I had to be at uh, the school when kids were getting there to sell them tickets and for like two hours, I would just sit there and sell kids tickets and talk to them and talk to their parents. And I was so happy. I mean, you know, just that like bumping into people interaction. I mean, I really, for me, that's incredibly necessary to, to my spiritual health, but really to my mental health. So Hmm. I totally get this. Yeah. I'm the same way you are, Sarah. Like it, it's, um, it can be exhausting being around people, but it's yes. also so life-giving yeah. and it's like, oh yeah, that's why I'm doing this. And, um, you know, and then I don't know, problems you need to solve or things you're thinking about. It's just so much more productive to actually talk to someone about it and work it out together and kind of partner than to sort of, for me to sit by myself. I mean, I do need time for reflection and time away, but yeah, speaking of technology, which just destroys me, man, email. Like, oh my gosh. And I've never had a moment in my working life where email wasn't a thing. And I was talking to our director of operations, who's a little bit older than me, and he does remember that. And I said, what what was that like? And he said, well, people couldn't, didn't bother you with trivial things, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, the way that they do right now. There are great things about email, you know, that that can be very helpful. And a lot of stuff on email is not trivial. But I do find it so draining to respond to all those and try to find the right words and try to be thoughtful um but also just make sure you know sometimes emails can be misinterpreted and you don't know someone's body language and like it's just exhausting whereas being around people is wonderful now i will say my wife probably you know if she wasn't uh, if she didn't have three children she probably could have been a desert father type person i mean when Mm. she was coming to faith like she was in her room every night for two hours reading her bible and journaling and that's how she really encountered God. And um, Sunday afternoons after church, you know, um, I mean, I've been up, <laughs> I've been up since five a.m. writing my sermon and doing two services, and I'm kind of like exhausted from being on a high. She's just exhausted from having being around people. Yeah, like mm. she she has to take a nap on Sunday afternoon just from being from around people. that many yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. So I think it depends on depends on the person. Yeah. But um, in general, I mean, I think she's saying what we've been saying for a while, right? That yeah, and this is... We're, loneliness we're... Loneliness is a thing in our culture, and therapy hopefully will help you to get out of your shell and engage with other people so that you won't be so lonely. And that's not the only problem, but people are lonely. They need well, I was, I was heard this truth, and I don't think I've shared it on here before, but I was... T- um, Sebastian Junger, the, um, the writer and uh, who's a sort of an activist for vets uh, these days, he was... Um, there were he was at a at a some sort of a, I think the Nantucket project or something like that, and was asked about anxiety and mental health issues confronting um, just young people in America, not just those who've served in the armed forces. And he said that something that some uh, I didn't know this was the truth, but you know mental health counseling services therapy uh, centers are so overrun with demand right now on grounds on on university campuses yeah. that some have taken. To to wisely that you you come in and before they'll give you an appointment, they hand you a list of five organizations that you can need, can volunteer for, and they say go out try volunteering at one of these. It doesn't matter which one, and if in two weeks you don't feel any different, then we'll make the appointment uh, because that level of you know it's it's the 
you know, Alcoholics Anonymous thing, you know, just be of use to someone else and you'll, you'll feel better. It's, it's in that Stutz documentary we've talked about, but it's also just the church, you know, it's, it's service is not just good for other people or your neighbor, it's good for you too. And, um, it's not necessarily that God needs service, uh, your service, but your neighbor does, and you need that. And I thought that was a super interesting thing, which is not like, here's, a, here's an app to help you monitor your heart rate. It's more like, just go to this elder care facility and just hang out for two hours and just see what happens. Because um, there's so much inertia against doing stuff like that. But I, I thought that was a creative and hopeful response to mental health. I don't know what the statistics will be following that, but I could certainly see it as something. It's like, have you even tried this before we're going to medicate you and use up these resources uh, that other people might need too? Is that, what do you think about that? I don't know. I mean, I work with <laughs> college students and, um, and it's real hard. So it's real hard being yeah. a college student. Yeah. yeah. I just think we're definitely seeing like the results of the pandemic, um, mm. dealing with a lot of issues, uh, just in general around parentification and, you know, I can kind of speak to some of that, but they really would do better to actually meet with the therapist. So mm-hmm. it's pretty hard for me to see how difficult it is for them to actually get good mental health care. Yeah. yeah. I would not... I don't know. I, I, I kind of recoil and they're like, here, go volunteer. It's like they do a, they do enough. You know, they do a right. lot of that stuff. I mean, I think for me, yes. Mm-hmm. Me who's had 20 years of therapy, yes. I definitely think, you know, making homecoming moms was great for me. Um, mm. I'm not sure that's a solution for everyone. Right. Well, this if it's not, it looks like uh, Rena Raphael, who wrote the the book the the Gospel of Wellness, and I, we're I, we're hopefully she's going to be speaking at our New York City conference. She's like a former Goop employee who really had <laughs> a Damascus Road experience about the that. Uh, world in which she lived. And she wrote this book that's gotten a lot of uh, press. But she has a newsletter called Well To Do. It's just great. Jane Grizzle sent this to me um, about the sort of the newest, biggest wellness trend of 2023 is going to be community uh, apps or community uh, initiatives. This is what she says. She says, headlines like singles can snuggle this giant emotional support bear don't surprise me anymore. That The bear costs $144. The New York Post... Uh, uh, reports. Uh, that's how lonely people are. It's really weird when you think about it how the greater wellness industry has generally ignored the importance of social support. Americans are spending more time alone, reports the Washington Post, and they have fewer close friends than ever before. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Meanwhile, mental health platforms and meditation app popularity actually dropped by over 30% in the most recent polling. This is partially because many of those apps started to feel like work, but also apps can't solve the mental health crisis because people require the support of other people. This is why I'm so critical of how the current iteration of self-care has more or less been whittled down to solo spa time. But, she says, self-care culture is changing. Younger adults are trying to prioritize socializing as part of their wellness routine. In one survey, nearly two-thirds of respondents agreed with the statement, my social life affects my wellness as much as as physical health. If there was a smattering of initiatives in the last five years, 2023 will see a more targeted approach to improving social well-being. <clears throat> Expect to see gyms incorporate far more social events outside the studio. McAllister Training in San Luis Obispo, for example, hosts barbecues, bowling nights, movie nights, and even college football game outings. 
You'll also see corporate America, health clinics, and new startups trying to get people out and about. I know we've talked about this under the guise of seculosity um, and sort of the, but I, I do see it as an enormous opportunity for church uh, and for those who have any kind of religious inclinations. But um, I think it's it's fascinating that because uh, she's right, like all the statistics show us. And that happiness study that Harvard did that has kind of been conclusively finished now says basically the only predictor of happiness is increased social ties. Um, and now we're about to see, she thinks, under the guise of wellness, like the kind of commodification of social life, of social life mm. which maybe has already happened, maybe has always happened. I don't know. Does anything strike you? Well, I got to go see uh, the comedian Atsuko Okatsuka. I think I'm saying her mm-hmm. name right. And actually, we put a clip up on our own Mockingbird stuff because I went to see it with a friend who reads Mockingbird. She was like, you've got to see this community. You'll love her. She's like, y'all put her stuff up. And I was like, I don't know what you were talking about. But apparently in a weekly roundup, we used a clip of hers. And she does this whole bit about friends. It was very funny. But about when you meet married people, like she doesn't want to hear anything about like their lovey-dovey romance she just wants to know like how did they become friends first like because it's so hard to make friends and in her um performance i saw there was like this one-off where she's like i mean how do we make friends go to church like that (laughs) and then she kept going in a whole other direction but like it was fun. It's funny to me that that is, and and good that it's still in the ether. You know, I mean, it was pretty casually dismissed, but yeah, I mean, I think friendship is such a gift, and I think it's really hard to come by, and I think people are lonelier and lonelier. I mean, we've talked about that a lot, and you know, it actually, I think things are desperate enough that when I hear that gyms are wanting to do barbecues, like an older version of me would have been like, Oh, people should just go to church. But now I'm just like, well, at least they're doing something, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I, that makes me happy that, that anybody can show up for things in a community and not mm. be alone and sad. And as long as they pay the monthly membership fee, <laughs> right. that is, that is a part of this. Yes. Well, it's a lot harder to commodify like you, community activities, yeah. right? A spa is expensive. Yeah. Therapy is expensive. <laughs> you know, yeah. you got to pay for it. Gym's expensive, but you don't actually need to pay anybody to, yeah. you know, go to a bar. Theoretically, you, they're, your, they're your friend uh, um, because you choose them to be your friend or you actually, or maybe they've just been put in your life in a way that you didn't, uh, didn't choose, but certainly yeah. uh, the, this, the, what, what do they say? You want to remain friends with someone, uh, stay out of their wallet. <laughs> <laughs> don't but go I, anywhere near their I finances. do think, like, with the suicide rates, what they are in this country, like, any community is positive. Yeah. Sue Shelby, Sue Shelby sent, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sent me an article. Maybe not anyone, article. but you know what I mean. There was a study which pretty much directly linked deaths of despair to declining church attendance, oh. you know, and said the, the groups in which you're seeing the largest increase in deaths of despair, addiction, overdose, suicide, whatever, are the same groups who uh, stopped going to church, don't go to church anymore. Mm. And even when I was in college, I remember having a good friend. Um, and that's on us, could... though, you know? That's on us. Yeah, of course it we're is. Not of course it despair. is. But I, I'm with you, Sarah. I, I think that this is uh, just, there's people are in incredible amounts of pain and anything to, to that, that involves like kind of being known and, you know, having any kind of sort of relationships, totally. that's yeah, a good thing. Uh, who's not in favor of that? I, you know, 
I don't think all communities are frankly created equal. I think there's some that are going to exploit you and some yeah. that are going to accept you and or some that are going to seem really great at first and then wear you out and some that are going to... But, but at the same time, to, you just sort of just want to triage the bleeding. You just want to say, like, you know, we can we could we could be upset that people aren't coming to our community, or we can just be upset that people are in that much pain yeah. that they're like willing to turn, you know, instead of riding on a you know a, a stationary bike, they need it to also ameliorate their core you know, isolation. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. that's a tall task for a stationary bike. I mean, as a Peloton member. <laughs> um, we we sold ours. Yep. Uh, who rides it three or four times a week? Um, you know there is a whole thing about community with us, right? And it just yeah. every time they say stuff, every time they're like, "The community, everyone's riding with you." It just makes me feel like when I hear public radio like self promote, and they're just like, "Nothing's like this community," and I'm like, "I don't see any people around me." Like. <laughs> I'm doing this I, this is the definition of I'm being by myself. I'm either sweating on a bike or I'm listening to sad stories about orphans in the Ukraine, but I'm doing it alone, to be clear, in either platform. So, When we talk about the importance of community, there, uh, there it, again, it does... Uh, it does beg the question, what kind of community? Because this next uh, two items, or item and a half, is from Richard Beck. Now, he's a theologian on the West Coast, and he writes one of my favorite newsletters called Experimental Theology. And um, he's written something about uh, a series called Reading the Bible with the Damned. Mm. And that's based on a book by um, Bob Eckblad, who wrote this book about doing basically prison ministry. And Richard Beck, who would, he, he had self-identifies as a progressive, Christian. Um, what has he been taught from leading a Bible study at a maximum security prison every week? This is where he begins. I think it speaks to this American Christianity and the loneliness stuff and the content of what the communities are doing. He says this is, when I started leading the Bible study out at the prison where I was in a season of deconstruction, Doubt and questioning were the engine of my spiritual life. Lament was what I was most interested in, the desolations of feeling abandoned by God. So when I went out to the prison, one of my very first studies was going to be about the Lament Psalms. I made this decision because I felt that the prisoners would relate to lament given their hard and dark circumstances. If anyone should feel God abandoned, I assumed surely it would be the incarcerated. Let me then help give voice to their lament. I thought this was a winning plan. It didn't go so well. About midway through my lesson on the lament psalms, really leaning into their despair, the men in the study started to go restless and frustrated. Seeing this, I stopped. What's going on? I asked. Well, they responded, we get it. We know. Prison is a really dark place. We don't need to be reminded of that. Okay, I said. Then if lament isn't what you need to hear, what do you need? Hope, Hope. they shared. We need some hope. This seems blindingly obvious to me now. And in my spiritual biography, this exchange was the critical turning point in my season of deconstruction, the hinge moment when I began my season of reconstruction. Starting that night out at the prison, I began to preach about hope. Given where I was at the time, this wasn't easy, but I grew into it. Men in a very hopeless place taught me to hope. For that, I am eternally grateful. Lament has its use. It helps a privileged church resist becoming triumphalistic. Lament makes sense in that social location, he writes. But out at the prison and among the poor, I've learned that hope is the more needed message. Despair doesn't need any more attention. Despair is the temptation 
What is needed is a move from desolation to hope. Now, in the next installment, he goes even further because he talks as a person coming from sort of the theological left, which is very suspicious, and people who are kind of deconstructed, very suspicious of uh, atonement that involves this sort of substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement is the theological terms. And you hear people saying, like, well, I don't like that. Um, and I, we had a, I had a friend who was developing a Sunday school curriculum, and there was a church that was very stridently sort of progressive, and they, they said, well, we don't like that there's a substitutionary atonement in this. And But this is what Beck said. He said this. He said, before spending time at the prison, I believed penal substitutionary atonement was just bad across the board. But guess what? Guess what is a pressing spiritual and emotional concern inside a maximum security prison? If you guessed guilt and forgiveness, you win a prize. Mm. Mm. Here's the thing. Guilt is a problem. Shame is a curse. They really are. Consequently, forgiveness and grace are needed. Visions of atonement that address shame and guilt are dealing with deep and vital human concerns. But, he writes, for him at least, it all comes down to location, location, location. Should you use forensic metaphors with children and young people cranking up the guilt to get a big emotional response from them at the end of your retreat or camp experience? Probably not. But you might lean into this language when working with people who have committed crimes that haunt them, who wonder if they can ever be forgiven for the horrible things they have done. Yeah, you might talk with these people about how their sins have been forgiven and their guilt washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That's everybody. I know, right? <laughs> I know. I was, I was just... I, there was yeah. a, there's a wonderful woman in our church who was telling me a story. Um, she was at a cocktail party and saw a woman wearing a necklace with a bunch of different kinds of crosses on it. And my friend said, oh, I love your necklace. And she said, well, yeah, I, you know, I like it too. I'm not very religious, but I sort of like the way it looks. And my friend said, oh, well, I'm a total Jesus freak, so I really love your necklace. And the woman kind of chuckled and thought she was joking and then um, stopped herself and, and said, uh, oh, wait, you're, you're serious, aren't you? And my friend said, yeah, I am. Like, I, I, it's just so, it's an amazing thing to wake up every morning and, and drink from kind of a fire hose of God's love. And this woman, this very well-dressed, you know, uh, Palm Beachy type woman said, um, well, maybe God loves you, but he certainly doesn't love me. Um, and my friend looked at her and said, God knows every hair on your head, and he loves you. And this woman started to weep in this cocktail party. So I don't know what the woman did, but she did something, or something happened to something her, happened or something. Her. She's got something in her life that has convinced her that God does not love her and could never love her. Um, and I just feel like that's true for so many people, whether or not they are sitting in prison. Mm. Mm. At least join a gym. Go to a barbecue. <laughs> yeah, go to a barbecue. I know a really sake. good barbecue yeah. to check out. Well, these yeah. people are surrounded by other people, and they're yeah. probably friends friends with a lot of them. You know, yeah. and they've they've they're walking together through this thing, and the people you form tight friendships from what I've heard. But they need more than just that. They need um, hope, mm -hmm. and they need forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he goes far enough, you know, and I because I don't think it's contextual as it as it sounds, as my that was my response too. But I also love this idea that like mm. seeing the the stakes and this kind of desperate need, Sarah. When you say that people are going to uh, barbecue with their you know soul cycle people because they um, the church hasn't answered their despair in some way that feels actually authentic or uh, urgent. And I, I, I always, I just think that, the, that in fact here, the extreme example illustrates what's true for everyone. I have that sort of eye rolling thing when I hear about 
people being like, oh, you're just, I'm really getting into lament. And I want to say, really? <laughs> like, I, okay. Take that uh, white nonsense. <laughs> Someplace place else. That's what I there's, think every time. I mean, I remember yeah. there was a diocese I do not serve, but they did a whole thing about lament. And like, it just feels like so self-congratulatory. I mean, these, that that is that is the group that needs a list of five organizations to go volunteer at. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I have to say, I mean, this kind, this, I, this kind of enrages me this piece because it it I, I love where he lands but it's this thing that we say in you know in progressive christianity and i'm definitely a person who lives in that world we say the atoning death of jesus the forgiveness of jesus is for the other isn't it great how prisoners have this unique yeah. connection and spirituality with jesus it's because they've been through so, so much when are we going to be honest that we've all been through so much i know when it's are totally, we going to be I, better when are we going to figure out we're not better than preach. than the gospel i mean i just it just so i this is lovely and i'm so glad for this gentleman's journey but i kind of <laughs> wish he would have pushed himself and everybody he loves over towards the atonement that we all need in our lives yeah i, find I, it very I, I couldn't be more with Dave. you I, I, well i get it i didn't i didn't we'll read it to, to take upset a hot people girl walk after this day i'm worked up <laughs> Well, it's um, it's there. There's something very, very true about what he is confronting. Yeah. Remember when we talked about that guy Chris Arnade, who was a Citibank employee who went and took photographs in the Bronx, yeah. and he wrote that wonderful book called Dignity, looking at uh, sort of the the back sh back row America. And he 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 thought that when he got into the Bronx, into Hunts Point, the worst one of the worst neighborhoods in America, and he said, I I thought everyone would be so um despondent and, uh, you know, uh, no one would have any kind of religious faith. And he said, I, as I went on, I realized that perhaps it was my atheism, which was a uh, function of my privilege, and it was only available to that kind of uh, view of the world, that kind of uh, materialistic view of the world, is really only available to those li whose lives have basically gone well. Mm -hmm. And of course, what, what I would, you know, just the unfortunate testimony of life is that everyone's life eventually goes down goes the drain well. it go well, eventually we end up in the hospital bed or we've you know it may, may it may take a long time i've watched people going for the record you know of uh of being buffered from anything um or, or admitting any kind of need. I think it's admitting dave i don't think anybody admitting. gets buffered i think their their adult children get divorced Yes, I've talked right? to three different people this week whose adult children are, have everything they can and ever want. And their lives blow Successful up. careers, and the kids go to wonderful schools, and they have access to every kind of therapy, and they're totally estranged and miserable. And they don't, you know, they don't go to church, and I'm not saying church is always the answer, but maybe it might help. Mm. Um, there is a you, universalizing word at church, though, that all yes. have sinned well, and fallen. Yeah. But you meet and those I people, about, and they're what? Like, they're 65 years old. They're dealing with this yes. child. They have the same anguish that we have when our six-year-old, you know, can't yeah, ride a bike. Ends. It never ends. Like, it it's, never ends. Yeah, anybody who acts like caring. they've never had anything mm. really wrong go in their life, I just, I, I think you're a lunatic. Denial? I think denial. you're a lunatic. Well, <laughs> yes. Like, and it makes me so you know the the lectionary for this week is the beatitudes mm. right and and it's just such a statement that like if you want to receive god's blessing like admit your poverty yeah. admit your mourning yeah. mm. 
you know, uh, uh, grasp your, your, your meekness, mm-hmm. your lostness, your hunger and thirst for something good. Yes. You know, it, it's just people yes. who it's, AKA you don't have it yet. Day, it's, it's a denialism, but it's also a shame. It's a shame yes. that says, how could I, how could I dare admit my unhappiness and my need when I have so yeah. much? I'm not, I'm not worth it. Right. Yeah. I'm, I should be doing better than I am. And that, yeah. that, you know, you yeah. need to give people permission and say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. You are suffering. Mm-hmm. Your kids are suffering. Mm-hmm. Your grandkids are suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, just like get on your knees mm-hmm. and ask for deliverance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God might actually show up. <laughs> or at least you'll feel better. Well, that's what I was going to say. That blessing, you know, we always use that word and we think, oh, it means things are, are better. Or it means whatever. It means all these things. That blessing is just freedom. Freedom that yep. you said that blessed are the unblessed. Yes, yeah. that you that you don't know how to do this, that you're lost, Mm-mm. and that you need Jesus. That's the that's the freedom. Yeah. That's the blessing. So, mm. yeah. Well, you know, the the Todd Brewer. I had sent these uh, to him, who edits our website, and he wrote a, a masterful uh, piece about it that I think sums up some of what we what we're what we're trying to capture here. But he also let fly a tidbit which I was unaware of. This phrase which you've heard, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Ugh. It is so often used in relationship to what preachers should do. Do you know where that, where that originally came from, where that phrase, what the derivation Probably is? Probably nowhere good. Hitler. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. It was written by a columnist in 1904. Oh, for uh, God's uh, sake. About the, about the purpose of newspapers. At first blush, this maxim might seem to be a reasonable description of the operation of God's attributes in the real world, a way of seeing how God's wrath and mercy are distributed to various peoples. The comfortable bourgeois are cast down in affliction, while the oppressed and downtrodden are lifted up and comforted. Well, if Beck contends that doctrines have limited utility depending on their context, Mm -hmm. I would argue that the idea of contextual appropriateness he outlines itself has a very limited utility. For starters, humans don't have a great track record of determining who is in need of comfort and who needs a healthy dose of affliction to straighten them out. At our very best, we might approximate a guest on the basis of faulty information, which isn't all that different from bias or prejudice. Is that perpetually late friend overstretched beyond their means or simply selfish? Does your son need more structure and discipline or is he depressed? If given the opportunity, I imagine most everyone would choose comfort for themselves and reserve affliction (laughs) for pretty much everyone else. (laughs) Even supposing that we could properly identify a group of afflicted or comfortable people, humans are pretty terrible at actually knowing what is and is not comforting or afflicting. Mm. Though the Apostle Paul, quote, became all things to all people, hey, contextual ministry. The gospel he preached to the Gentiles was the same gospel Peter was entrusted with to preach to the Jewish people. There weren't many Gospels, but one. Paul preached Christ crucified to both wealthy Corinthians and poor Macedonians. The same thing could be said of Jesus, who believed that everyone was lost and in need of repentance, whether they be a prostitute or a Pharisee. Jesus did not show grace to only a select few, but healed the poor and the rich alike. He dined with friend and foe indiscriminately and preached to everyone within earshot. Jesus even counted a tax collector and a zealot as his disciples, sworn enemies who both responded to the same call, come, follow me. In his death, the divine attributes of wrath and mercy collide, forgiving both the crucified thief and the Roman centurion under the darkness of God's judgment. 
Jesus died for all, regardless of their virtue, worth, or social status. However different people might be, no one is righteous and everyone suffers. Everyone needs the gospel, even the respectable, educated, affluent church. I sign off on that. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I was talking last night to a man who had spent most of his career as a banker in Pittsburgh. Now, if you know what that means, um, Pittsburgh is the place, uh, the site of all the historic wealth in America. Uh, by that, I mean the Carnegies and the Mellons and uh, the Hillmans and the largest sort of family trust funds that were all... Uh, came to be are almost all based in Pittsburgh. And he said most of his career was spent sort of dealing with the uh, fallout, shall we say, of Mm. uh, the deep unhappiness, discord, and um, estrangement that that followed those families around. He he did mention that that there was one family that was an outlier, but I thought to myself, um, the people he was describing, while they had inordinate amount of money and could purchase skyscrapers with just a stroke of a check, they sounded like people in need of the gospel. <laughs> they sounded like yeah. miserable sinners, but they also sounded like people in pain and who are sort of flailing around for some for love and uh, never had a chance in a lot of ways because you, you're brought up into that kind of world and, and there's no um, what's, ex- both what's expected of you and what's kept from you are uh, beyond measure. So I just thought to myself, the way he talked about it, the only way he was able to survive in that field was not to view these people as hating them and blaming them for not being better, but to view them as in, in many ways victims of, uh, or mm. at least suffering heavy burdens and oppressed um, and complicit in, but oppressed by essentially sort of the forces of darkness and um, in need of uh, love and patience and tolerance, um, which is hard to do when when the, 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 the you're dealing with like a sort of a, a grown child throwing a tantrum in a boardroom. But um, I thought to myself, wow, I don't think I have that much grace in me. Maybe God does, though. Mm. It makes me think of the Coach Prime documentary um, about Deion Sanders and they introduce his kids and it's this kind of awkward moment where his wife it's like they have one kid who's the quarterback that admittedly even he is problematic because he just seems to like he's now the quarterback in Colorado like you know it's like he 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 literally has I mean it's it's nepotism and it's starkest reality but but then Nepo like babies. He, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then it's like, you know, then there are these other kids and, you know, you can feel one parent. I'm pretty sure it was Deion Sanders who's like, well, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's a DJ. He's a this. He's a that. And then his wife is like, is he? You know, and they have this kind of <laughs> awkward exchange. And I just was like, I don't know what it, that sounds very hard. And I know it's easy to dismiss that but because we all you know want endless amounts of money to drown ourselves in because we think that will make us happy and so when people have lots of money we think that that will make us happy and we're envious and it's hard for us to be empathetic but just need to go to a sleepover at their house that's right the directionlessness (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it really is like the score keeping. I mean, I have a degree from a the, from yeah. from an Ivy League school and the happiest I've been maybe in the past year was selling tickets to four year olds. 
last week. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. there is real happiness and actual work and connection. And, and I do, I feel bad for people that don't even get the opportunity to know what that feels like. But this, this assumption that we can only, that there's a certain group of people that are in need of the gospel more it's or that, that for whom, or from whom that we need to reserve grace until they've uh, repented sufficiently also in the way that we, we deem necessary. Because you don't want to say like, I've been, I've also, by the way, been to sleepovers at very wealthy people's houses and they seem to have amazingly warm, uh, lovely familial relations. And you want to say, well, damn you. You know, it's like, <laughs> you got, You've it, got all. it all. You've never <laughs> suffered. But they won't be spared either. And I wouldn't want the, to them to come to church on the Sunday when the uh, minister is... Um, only saying that basically God, uh, uh, th- that there's a specific class of people that are sort of need to n- jump through f- hoops of fire before uh, they can uh, receive the grace of God. I want them to hear that, you know, God jumped through that hoop himself. You know, I want, it th- I want some, some atonement and some hope and some... Anyway, uh, RJ, what, what else do you think about this? I guess the only thought I had, Dave, was... I don't know. It, you know, yes, community is a wonderful thing, but people are broken and divisions happen and strife happens, and that happens in the church too. But I kind of wonder if, like, a good church, a gracious church, is our best shot at something like real community that lasts, that's not just going to, you know, end up at, at, at factionalism or something mm. like that. Because, you know, um, I don't know. There is there's something just very distinctive about a church where people are reminded, you know, reminded of their brokenness and their sin, and then reminded of God's love. It engenders a certain level of humility, introspection, joy, peace, love. You know that you might not quite find anywhere else besides like you know AA or something. Mm. <laughs> you know, which is basically the church. Yeah. AA, I would say twelve step programs are basically the church. So. I don't know. Sarah, any, any close, That's what closing I hope my church thoughts becomes. from you? I think church is really complicated for people. So I always hesitate mm. when we have these kind of rah-rah church episodes. Because I know that churches can be um, just as difficult or more difficult for people to enter into in community as, as any place else. And I know that people have really painful experiences at church. And it's yeah. so brave to me when people try church again. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who works with 18 to 22 year olds, it's incredibly brave to me when they walk across the street for the first time, you know, to try mm. our community out. But I think it's a risk worth taking. So, yeah. um, so it, that I, I hope that people do. I'm less, I mean, I want them to experience the relational and communal benefits of a church, but what I really want is for people to hear the gospel and to know that God, mm. and, and to experience God, and I, that's not found exclusively in the church, like not by a long shot. In fact, the church is sometimes yeah. the last place you find that, and I want to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think that uh, also the content of the community does matter in the sense that you can have, that I want grace uh, to be the... Um, more people to experience the grace of God, which I believe is at the heart of the universe, and how yeah. to do that in such a way that is um, perfect and and um, and does bring people into relationships. I, I don't really know, but I know that that seems to be the church architecture, the church language may upset people, but anytime I've talked to people about grace as it relates to them personally, and forgiveness and hope, 
and redemption, um, wherever they can find that. And I happen to see that that's reliably found in the the person of Jesus Christ. Like, I don't find people running from that. I I, I think that that's something that is exciting. I hope it is. But again, I'm willing to... The institutional church... Yes. Never, never start there. Good God. Well, I, you know, I, it's funny cause I preached to my students this past week and it was the, you know, Jesus sends people, you know, gathers up the first four disciples and they fish for people, men, whatever. And I was so struck. I have the great convenience of, I preach on Monday so <laughs> I can see really wonderful sermons on Sunday Um, at my own church where I worship or online. And I happened to see this brilliant take that Jacob Smith had about how fish can't really see below them. They Mm. can only see, you know, in forward and to the side. And so the nets just scoop them up from underneath. Like they don't know what's coming. Mm. Oh, that's great. And, you know, when I was talking to my students, I said, this text is so often used as like a kind of a pressure point for us as Christians. Like, what are you, would you have dropped everything you're doing to go follow Jesus and you have to follow Jesus and here's your to-do list. And I was like, I actually think maybe we're supposed to just be the fish that gets scooped up the way that grace scoops us up. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and maybe yeah, talk about that. Right. When people ask why you show up in our community, why you love our church, talk about that before you talk about anything in the community it's, you know, it's that you are a fish and you, and God's grace scooped you up from out of nowhere. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that's, that's the kind of community I hope to make with my college students. Um, and that's that I pray that the, those are the kind of communities that people can find. Mm. Well, why not end there? I, f- I find that com- type of community with the two of you. Aww. Aww. Same girl. <laughs> <laughs> You're so cheesy. Oh my god. Sorry. It's awful. Sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you both very much. And um I yeah, I wish everyone out there a, a wonderful week or two. And if there's any if there's any kids of sleepover age who are listening to this, uh, go nuts. Drink extra soda next yes. time you're out there. You know, Get please. Fanta pineapple. It has the most grams of sugar Sneak in it. Sneak the Oreos. <laughs> Fanta yes. pineapple. I didn't know it was a thing. I'm gonna <laughs> Try that. Um, Delicious. Don't so. skip the clearly Canadian. Go straight to the Fanta <laughs> pineapple. Right. Fanta pineapple. Yes. All right, you guys. All Thanks right. so much. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com, and we'd always love to hear from you at info@embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Bye.